0: All right, let's bow our heads. Dearly Father, thank you for days like today, for days that we can sit back and enjoy fellowshipping with you and with each other as members of the same faith, a faith that bears unity, that transcends all other relationships in this world. Father, what a privilege it is to enjoy such things in time. They are precursors to our heavenly abode. Father, this is just another day to appreciate you, your grace, your mercy, your love. These are the things that have ushered such blessings into our lives. We just pray that we never become familiar with them, but rather embrace each day for what it is, a grace gift. We pray for those that can't be with us this morning due to illness or other reasons and we pray of course for those that are still lost in this world we are most grateful and thankful for your son's work to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a reality we do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message may it be edifying for our souls we ask this in jesus Christ's precious name by the power of the spirit we do pray amen Again, The Deceitfulness of Sin, Part 53. I want to begin with some divine clarity on life itself. This is something that came up on Thursday evening. Who are we serving? What are we serving? Uh, How do we serve? That is our spiritual form of service, if you would, or worship. We serve truth, not feelings. That's a huge groundswell in a lot of Christians' lives. We serve the truth. It's not about how we feel and then we back into the truth. It's the truth. The truth may precipitate feelings. That's okay. That's appropriate. That's real. But we don't enslave truth or what we suppose as truth to our feelings, that's backwards. So, we serve truth, not feelings. We don't have the right even to, quote, feel our doctrines into existence. Whatever we are meant to believe is actually, clearly, plainly laid out in the Bible. Isn't that wonderful? Whatever we need to know about this life we're living, here it is, honestly. This this is it. What's holy? What's righteous? What's good? And as our old lessons uh, ask, you know, who gets to define those things? Right there. So all our answers, in other words, are right there. In the absence of that, what do we have left? Our gut feelings? What we think is right? Um, That's the way of the world. And it's, frankly, ungodly. So, whatever we are meant to believe, it's actually laid out in the Bible. Quote, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I command you. That's Deuteronomy 4.2. In other words, we don't ever get to add or subtract to the Bible. If it's in the Bible, then we should obey. If it's not in the Bible, we don't have the option or the right even to insert it. I think a lot of people do that thing. Stated differently, the object of our obedience, the object, the Bible interprets life and our feelings therein. Life doesn't interpret the Bible. The Bible interprets life. And any feelings. In other words, if you're going along your happy way and you have certain emotions, allow the Bible to define them for you. Interpret them for you. We don't allow life to interpret the Bible. That's backwards. But I would argue with today's Christianity, that's prevalent. That... As I've taught uh, maybe a month or so ago, people worship and serve their feelings. Now, they may have those so-called feelings directed towards holy things, even God, supposedly, we don't know. But they worship and serve their feelings. How good do they feel? They might even choose a church based on how good that church makes them feel, including the pastor. And that's a huge mistake because they're not actually looking for truth. They're looking to satisfy something in them that pre-exists knowledge of truth. And that's where humility comes in. So the Bible interprets life. Life doesn't interpret the Bible. The object of our obedience must be truth alone. That's it. That's it, which is the Word of God. And by the way, John one seventeen part B says, Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Hmm. So keep these things in mind as we emerge from our deep dive. That's what we've been doing. It's been slow going. I suppose that's appropriate given we're on part 53 of this series. That's a lot of weeks of study. That's a lot of lessons. That's 53 hours of lessons. And if you're doing your homework, which is what I like to call decompressing these messages, going home, on your own, thinking about them, maybe looking up some scripture that you took note of, maybe looking at notes, maybe taking notes, I don't know. You're talking about many more hours than 53 hours. You're talking about many, 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 many hours of teaching. So we are emerging uh, slowly because there's just so much to think about. We opened on Thursday with a single pervasive topic that has been percolating up in our studies for years now. I just mentioned it up here on the board, obedience. This has sort of taken center stage as we're coming out of this mind shaft. Maybe it's to remind us that if we're talking about the deceitfulness of sin... The escape, the rescue from the deceitfulness of sin just happens to be obedience. Make sense? So, in our summary, as we're emerging, it makes sense to me that if we looked at all the ways that we're deceived, the escape, <laughs> the rescue from those things, because there are many and they are heinous, is obedience. So, obedience, though, isn't just wrought with blessings. Now, this was a finer point, a wonderful point, uh, especially in a summary like this that the Spirit gave us on Thursday. Obedience isn't just wrought with blessings. A lot of people say, well, if I obey, then I'm blessed. And they become formulaic. You know, if I obey, then I'm blessed. And so, if I want to be blessed, if I want the goodies... I got to obey, you know, but obedience isn't just that it's an imperative. It's an absolute, it isn't even optional for a believer. It's one of the litmus tests that any person can take to even be assured of their faith. Do I have an inclination to obey? Is there a supernatural unction, let's call it, to obey? And does God the Holy Spirit uh, draw upon that thing with Holy Scripture? Does He pour out Holy Scripture upon that new creature in me that really does want to obey and together result in in obedient fruit? Does that thing happen? Does that process happen in me? That's a, a perfect litmus test for anyone to take. Am I obedient, as a general rule? Do I want to obey? Or is there nothing in me that wants to obey whatsoever? So again, obedience is an imperative, and absolute. It isn't optional for a believer. This is something Jesus plainly stated. We're going to look at this in John 14, 15, and then 15, 8 to 14. Let's look at this first one now. Go to John 14, 15. So, on this topic of obedience, this is all review. We're just coming at it slightly different. Thank you for my tea, Big Jim. Fantastic. Jim's like multifaceted, isn't he? Multi talented. Not only is he a giant, <laughs> formerly a basketball star, but he teaches prep school. He can make a mean tea. If Robin was here, she'd say he was a wonderful husband. This kind of a thing. What? Did, she? No. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Scratch that last one. <laughs> Anyways, John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Three words there I want you to focus on. If and you will. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So you see a cause and effect of sorts, right? If you will. Up here on the board, on the topic of obedience, if grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ, John 1.17b, then the object of our obedience is Christ himself. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Hmm. So you start seeing this, this sphere developing. He's speaking as if inside the sphere. In other words, like, because you're in here with me, then this is implied. And because you're in here with me on this front, then this is implied. In other words, if you love me, if you're in this sphere with me, then of course you want to obey. Makes sense to me. That's all he's saying. If you love me, if you truly love me, if you're one of mine, in other words, you will keep my commandments. And it's habitual. So if you fail, don't be overly condemned. That's just us being us. We're imperfect. But the idea, the the desire, the want to please him, to obey, is absolutely there. And that makes total sense, given that we are in Christ Jesus, in this sphere. And so he talks about it that way. This means that when we read John 14, 15, the non-optional imperative, you will, in other words, he says, if, you will, right? Not an option. It's an imperative. It's an absolute. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will obey. So, when we read John 15, the non-optional imperative, you will, is assigned to obedience. And that's awesome. It's wonderful. But it's only half the picture. Go to John 15:8, John 15 verse 8. So what you're really getting here this morning is perspective from Christ himself. It says, "If I gather you unto myself in me, in Christ, you will do this stuff." John 15:8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. If you're here with me, if you're in this sphere, you will, that's the imperative. If you love me, which is just another way of saying, if you're in me, you will keep my commandments. And when you do that, it brings glory to my Father, which is great. Which is the grand purpose of you remaining here on earth to bring glory to the Father. You'll bear much fruit. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. As a side note, I brought this up on Thursday, it reminds me of the parable of the sower because the good soil always produces a crop. You know, 30, 60, 100 fold. Always. Verse 9, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. And then he says in verse 10, If, here we go again, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now that's reversed, isn't it? The other one was, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Another imperative just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And I want you to concentrate. Oh, what happened? This didn't update? Do we have the old slides? Is that what happened? Wow, oh, we don't have the good slides. Um, they should be on there. Give me one second, folks. It's important. See if they're... Uh, Yeah, see if they're updated. They didn't? All right, just throw them up again. I'll just flip through them. Can you get me to where I was with that slide that says placeholder? Oh, that's a bummer. I I haven't done something in a very long time, actually drawn something. I actually had something drawn, but obviously he doesn't want that up here today. Okay. So if you can imagine right there, where it says placeholder, that was for me. Because I didn't feel like drawing it yesterday when I was preparing. So I drew it this morning, went through all that labor, and now it's not there. So now I have to do it in the air. I have to do like air guitar. You ready? So basically, I want you to concentrate on if and you will. And we see that twice. So in John fourteen fifteen. He says, if you love me, so imagine there's a sphere called love right here, and there's a sphere called obedience right here. He says, if you love me, you will obey. In other words, if you're here, this is implied. You get it? If you love me, you will obey. Okay. And then in John 15.10, he says, if you keep my commandments, if you obey, you will abide in my love. So what do you see? You see an interlock between love and obedience. If you love me, you'll obey. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. These two things are literally like hooked into each other, just like this. And when that happens in Holy Scripture, what we can assume as right is an entire sphere exists around this thing called the sphere of God. We might even say eternal life. And so imagine that thing, that both of these things, Christ is speaking from a place where he's always been, in the middle of that sphere, and he's saying, you see, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you get to abide my love. In other words, these things are implied, they're intrinsic to each other. Because now you're you're in fellowship with me, the author of both of these things. Does that make sense? That's very much transcendent above a formulaic, well, if I obey, then I get blessings, is it not? You see, that's almost earthly thinking. This is how he wants us to think. He wants us to think, hey, listen, look at, look at what I've given you. Look at where you are now. You couldn't even fathom these things as an unbeliever. And look at where I've brought you from destiny hell to this to misery, anxiety, awfulness, no hope, to this. So, together, if we look at those two verses, and they're not far apart in Scripture, which makes sense, together, his pair of promises interlock. Now, what do you suppose the end goal of locking us in like this, actually is. Why does He want us to lock in like that? Why does He want us to abide in that? I mean, why not just this formulaic viewpoint that a lot of religions have, that's almost stunted? It's almost like something started to grow, and then it was stunted? Why do you suppose the end goal of locking us in like this But why do you suppose that is? Or what do you suppose is the end goal of interlocking? Do you think maybe, just maybe, that this is what is meant with the idea of abiding in the sphere of eternal life? Maybe, just maybe, that's what he's describing. What it means to abide in the sphere of eternal life. Do you think that a concept like love is as old as the Lord God Himself? Do you think that a concept like love is as old as God Himself? Do you think that, likewise, obedience is just as ancient? The perspective is simple. God has no beginning and no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. That's Revelation 1.8. Which means He has no beginning and no end. Which really is just another name for eternal life. Now I need you to concentrate though. Because while that is true, that's not all the Bible has to tell us about eternal life. What we mustn't miss is that eternal life transcends human timelines. So we might immediately say, oh, eternal life. It's eternal, it's life, so it just means that, you know, life goes on forever. And that's where our human brain takes us. You know, that's eternal life. But we can't do that to eternal life. When we think of eternal life, we must think of it as an object not just a description of a timeline with no beginning and no end. We must think of eternal life as an object, not just a description of a timeline with no beginning and no end. Hold your thumb where you're at. Go to 1 John 1, verse 2. 1 John 1, verse 2. 1 John 1, verse 2. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. The life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, Now, that's very different than just a description of a timeline, isn't it? Talking about Jesus Christ here. Jesus Christ is eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That's what John is writing about. He's saying eternal life is Christ Jesus. So this is different. Now, listen. Jesus Christ doesn't just have eternal life. He is eternal life. You see the difference? He doesn't just have it. It's not like, hey, I have eternal life, so I get to live forever. (laughs) Is that true? Yeah, that's true. But the Bible says he is eternal life. That's a big difference. Agree? That's a really big difference. Not just saying, I'm going to live forever, so think of eternal life that way. He's saying, no, I am eternal life. Life takes on a different notion, doesn't it? Life becomes the opposite of death. I'm eternal goodness. I'm eternal life itself. All good things wrapped up into life itself. I'm eternally that. See, the natural mind says, oh, eternal life, timeline. Living forever. No. That is short-changing like you cannot even imagine what the Bible says about eternal life. So Jesus Christ doesn't just have eternal life. He is eternal life. And that's the mystery. That we are joined with him that way. And we are invited in fellowship in that sphere that I was trying to talk about. Hmm. So there's a seismic difference between these two things. Now, here's why we're studying the deceitfulness of sin. Because... Sin wishes to deceive you into thinking much less of this precious gift that we are given in Christ Jesus as believers. Sin would much prefer, it's not a total win, but sin would much prefer that all of you just think of eternal life as allowing you to live forever in heaven. Sin's like, okay, it's a partial win. But they don't understand what the Bible has to say about eternal life. That the focus is on life itself. Eternal is just the adjective describing the, re- the real thing. The real object. Which is this thing called life. And it stands as goodness. And it stands in contrast to death. See, sin doesn't want you to see this. So I'm probably going to get attacked today. So pray for me. These are pearls. This whole series, part 53 now, pearls. Pearls. Hope you're paying attention. I hope you're really taking that extra time. Hope you're doing that thing that I alluded to earlier, decompressing these lessons, taking time with them, thinking about them, because sin is going to immediately try to deceive you away from these truths. For some of you, you're going to leave this church today and there's going to be another human being that's going to do that to you. And Satan's going to use them and just as a distraction. You're going to give this the you know, obligatory one hour or one hour and ten minute, whatever we go, today. You're going to give it attention, and you're probably giving it attention right now. But as soon as you jump in your car, you're going to turn your phone messages back on, and lo and behold, there's little Cindy Lou with her batting eyelashes. Hmm. I'm distracted already. There's Buffalo Bill. (laughs) Right? Some of you are perverted, so just saying. There's... I don't know. There's so and so. Immediately, you haven't even gotten you haven't even gotten out of the parking lot. And sins already got you distracted away from this pearl. Not to mention, I mean is it any is it like what season is it now? Is it baseball? What season? Don't you go ahead. You guys can some of you are like I don't know. <laughs> is it like it's not football. Is it baseball? <laughs> yeah, so it's baseball season, right? Uh, Baseball season has like 180 games or something. Could there be more of a distraction if you're a baseball fan? 180 games? Is that true? Am I exaggerating? 162? OK, so we know who's enslaved to baseball. So you shouldn't have done that, man. You just laid it. See, but you're a sacrificial lamb right there. He's like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to let the whole congregation pounce on me. See how they are? They're fickle, as long as it's not them. Right? You just sacrificed yourself. Thank you. Because <laughs> it's usually me. Right? The sins are going to try to distract you as soon as possible away from pearls like this. I have another missing slide here. Uh, so you're going to have to imagine this one as well. Uh, Scott had sent me an <clears throat> excerpt from a book he's reading by A. W. Tozer. Uh, And it reads, this is a uh, quote from that, The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. Perfect case in point. If you don't understand what eternal life is, if you just think of eternal life as something on a timeline, you don't even understand what and who Christ is because Christ is described as eternal life. Do you see how short you've fallen? And most Christians, and this is what Tozer's saying, and this was years ago, fall way below the watermark. And they don't care. Again, the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. Hmm, so true. This is precisely how sin deceives Christians nowadays. They do not understand eternal life at best they think of eternal life as a function of some timeline go to 1 John 5:11 1 John 5 verse 11 and now you can start seeing again how sin robs us of the greater things that are actually in the bible 1 John 5:11 And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. We are not just talking about a timeline, my friends. We are talking about being in Christ Jesus. And that's the perspective by which Christ was speaking of. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. That's what it means to have eternal life. That's what it means to be given this gift. They're all one and the same. In my diagram that's not here, I had a big circle (laughs) around all of it, and down at the bottom it said, uh, the sphere of God equals eternal life. And the whole idea is that eternal life is all of that. And when you get invited in, things like fellowship, eternal life, love, obedience, all the good things that are part of life, eternal, are in there. And so when we speak about being in there, we speak matter-of-factly. We just speak matter-of-fact, absolute, imperatives. I'm in. This is what it is. This is what it means to be here. This is what it means to actually have eternal life. So 1 John 5.11, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is is in his Son. When we are given eternal life, we are given much more than longevity of life. We are given much more than longevity of life. Think about that for a moment. Even people in the lake of fire will exist forever, but they do not have eternal life. So you see, eternal life cannot be thought of as just going on forever and ever. Eternal life must be something transcendent because people in the lake of fire do not have it, but yet they exist forever and ever. You must understand this concept in order to fully understand the connective tissue that exists between love and obedience. If you've been struggling with love and obedience, obedience and love, this is why the Spirit's bringing up eternal life even this morning. You've got to understand that to understand the nuances inside. That if you love, you'll obey. If you obey, you'll abide in love. Those are the nuances of being in the whole sphere of God, which is eternal life. Eternal life implies love and obedience because all three concepts are wrapped up in the essence of God. So you see, at salvation, we are given Him. Not just a list of free gifts. We are made to be in union. That's the baptism of the Spirit, right? We are made to be in union with Christ, who is eternal life. So when he says, I give you eternal life, he's essentially saying, I give you my son. When he says, I give you my son, I'm essentially giving you eternal life, because they're one and the same. So at salvation, we are given him not just a list of free gifts. The gifts that are listed in the Bible are resultant facets of being in Christ, descriptors, if you will. This reminds me a little bit of when I had to teach you a while back about, you know, knowing versus knowing. That a person can know about Jesus, but still not know Him because they're an unbeliever. Not have a real relationship with Him because they're an unbeliever. Oh, sure, they know of Him. I mean, there are many Christians, I'm sure of it, that know about Christ that know about Jesus, but are actually just professing Christians, aren't even saved. They're false, because they don't know Him. Isn't that what Jesus said? But didn't we? But didn't we? But didn't we? Yeah, but I never knew you. Go away from me to the lake of fire. So there's a difference here. So let's look at one more verse before we head back to our main passage go to 1st John 5 20 1st John 5 verse 20 <clears throat> and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true know him you see and we are in him who is true In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Sphere of God, eternal life, Jesus Christ, all the same. If you're actually in Christ Jesus, you will love Him and you will obey Him. If neither of these things exist at all, or if you're just a phony, then you're not saved. That's something I taught starting back in October of 2015. People didn't want to hear it. I lost friends in the ministry over it. But that's the fact. Once you understand the truth about the perspective of Jesus Christ, you know that he just talks that way. He talks from that perspective. This is who I am. And if you're mine, this is the truth of your life. This is eternal life. It's that simple. So, so much, I believe, in retrospect, so much of... Understanding this incredible book is just perspective. Understanding the perspective. Understanding the context of it. Once you have that, phew. all right, go back to John 15:10. John 15:10. John 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Again, I just want you to think about um, that picture that I sort of uh, showed you or drew for you in, in your mind between love and obedience and these bi-directional sort of interlocking imperatives. And then wrapped around all of that, it makes total sense that they're interlocking. I mean, you could technically throw every aspect or facet or every component of the essence of God into that same circle, and they would all be interlocked. Justice, righteousness, uh, you name it. Whatever you want to call out. Love they're all interlocked. One never works without the other. So if you have that perspective, which is the divine perspective, then you can speak the way Jesus spoke. John 14:15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Those are imperatives, like matter of fact. So right before we went off on that little sidebar, the spirit asked a question. So, why do you think Jesus wants us to know about the fullness of obedience and love and love and obedience? And we don't have to go any further. Look at this. John answers it for us. Look at verse 11. These things, these things I have spoken to you, so that, and it's, whenever it says that, you have a purpose in view. Why, Jesus? Why? These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. I want you to know these things. I really do. I want you to know these things, because I want you to have a joy. We might add eternal at the end of that. A joy eternal. You've already been given all the privileges. We just learn as we grow in grace and knowledge... We learn what those privileges are and often we learn them for the first time and we reject them because we say there's no way, there's no way I could have that kind of joy because frankly I'm a miserable crank and maybe the first time you do hear the blessings, these things, my joy, you say there's no way because I'm kind of miserable. And then five years later, after you've grown up a little bit, you say, I remember saying that to myself and here I am now with a component, with a a portion of joy that I never thought possible. How many of you in here can actually say that that's never happened to you? When you look back in your life, where you used to be, one year, three years, five years, ten years, from some of you uh, fifty years ago, and then you compare that to now, Can you possibly say that you haven't been delivered somehow? That you don't have some joy that's much, much greater, much more transcendent than anything else the world has ever promised you? And you look back and you say, all those lies that the world had me spun up in, all the deceit, all the batting eyelashes and the flexing muscles and the whatever you perverts do and look for on your phone when you get out in the parking lot, all that stuff is behind me now. And I used to be enslaved to it. And now I have a a joy set before me. I have a purpose set before me. I have a love. And that love precipitates something magnificent called obedience. And I have the prototype in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who perfectly obeyed His Father in heaven. It's all coming together now, you see? That's what Jesus was saying in verse 11. All this stuff... I say this so that you can have my joy. Because I had joy before mankind even existed. And I want you to have it with me. I want you to fellowship with me that way, in that joy. I want you to know about it. I want you to have assurance of faith on these things. I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that I didn't just go to the cross. If you were the only person I had to save, I still would have went to save you. I want you to know all this stuff. It's because you haven't known these things, as he says, in full, that you've um, taken quite a few waltzes with the sin life. It's because you've had doubts, because you haven't believed, that you go back to the mire, that you keep disobeying me. It's because the experience isn't all there yet. You have privilege to it, the gate's open but you're still ignorant. He says, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy, just put that into perspective. Okay. Okay. So if we had cars, you have a car, I have a car. Jesus has a car, right? Who's got the best car? Right? He says, that's it. I have something you cannot have. His car would be so magnificent. So unbelievable, so incredible, you couldn't even almost look at it out of basically shame. And he says, you know what? I love you. Here's the keys. He said, whoa, no. Can't take Jesus' hooptie. That's what he calls it. It's Latin. It's Greek. Hooptia. I'm just kidding. Can't take Jesus' ride. I, under- I don't deserve it. I'll scratch it. No, you won't. No, you won't. That's what he says. I have something you can't even fathom, my joy. Do you know? It's very personal to him. We're talking about my joy, not a joy in the ether, my joy. I'm willing to give you the keys to my joy. And some of you go, oh, no. And like I've taught years ago, you can tell an awful lot about a person how they receive grace. Now, I'm not going to be doing this, But if I walk up to you and say, here's the keys to my nice truck out there. And you go, oh, no, I couldn't do that because I'll scratch it. I'm going to say, you're an arrogant person. That's what we do. We say, oh, no, Jesus, no. I'll just sit over here with my little slice of of joy over here that circulates in, in, in dysfunction. You know what I mean? You know that one? Today I'm happy, tomorrow I'm miserable, today I'm happy, tomorrow I'm miserable, blah, 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 blah. I'll I'll just keep doing this thing because I'm undeserving of this. That's sin deceiving you. I'll keep playing this little game over here, wallowing in sin, because I don't believe you yet. And this is why these things are written. This is why he said, verse 11, these things I have spoken, so that, my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. In other words, try this on for size. You're miserable? Try loving other people more than you love yourself. Try that on for size. That'll deliver you. This is my commandment, that you have love for one another. Or that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. Do you see a pattern here? He's ushering you into this joy. For most people, most Christians I know, that is their biggest problem still. They might be saved, but they're still very self-absorbed. Still, everything in this world is about them. And then he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And I was thinking about that. How many other religions out there have a God that says to you, you are my friends? None. That's one of the common things with false religion. Behind the scenes, they have fear, riddled fear in them from or of a wrathful God. Our God says, hey, Be my friend. Wanna be my friend? Food for thought. Our God takes a merciful, loving approach to his children. Now, this doesn't mean that he doesn't discipline us, because he certainly does. As per Holy Scripture up here on the board, hey, I got a slide. Yay. (laughs) Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Hmm. Our father in heaven loves us. So he disciplines us. So don't get cockeyed and get on that kumbaya train where everything's love and, you know, worshiping feelings again. Our God invites us to eternal life into the Holy of Holies, to fellowship with him personally. You see, he's got the corner market, or he's got the market cornered on joy. Only inside of that sphere is there joy. And it's his, and he's owned it from before human history even began. So if you want that joy, if he says, my joy, if you want that joy, you have to be invited in. You have to fellowship with him. And that's part of eternal life. So our God invites us to eternal life, into the Holy of Holies, to fellowship with Him personally. And in doing so, we see His supreme confidence in the Word of God that we will love. Let me say that again. When He invites us in there to fellowship with Him, we see His own supreme confidence that we will love. That the privilege is ours. We love because he first loved us, right? The privilege is now made ours. We may not believe it right away. We may not experience right away. But the door is open. And he is supremely confident that you will love. And that you will obey. Didn't Jesus say that? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Was there any doubt in his voice? Did he say, well, maybe you will, maybe you won't? No, he said you will. Because that's what it means to be in this sphere with me. Because that's what we do here. That's what we always did before human history even began. That's who we are. We're called God. That's the essence that we're inviting you into. Oh, you will love. You will obey. You will have eternal life. You will fill in the blanks as long as it's from here, okay? Fill in the blanks. As long as it's from here, feel free to fill in the blanks. If he makes a promise about what it means to be saved, fill in the blanks. But understand that he's supremely confident in that good work that he started in you. at salvation. you will have hope. How about that one? In other words, abiding in the sphere of God implies all of the above. This is why the Apostle John wrote so dogmatically in his first epistle. Let's give that a quick read. Go to First John 1, verse 1. This has to be... Between John 1 and First John 1, Um, I always end up speechless. So I'm just going to read it. Keep in mind what he's already revealed to us this morning, what he's trying to develop in you. And listen to John, how dogmatic he is. He just says it. And that's how you have to think about this particular chapter in the Bible. It just is. He's speaking from within that sphere. And it's that dogmatic to him. He's like, this is just the way it is. <laughs> and if you, don't, if you don't see it this way, you're probably not saved. At least in some degree. To some degree. If, you don't, if you're not this way, then you need to really think about it. You need to challenge yourself. Anyways. 1 John 1.1. Think of the sphere of God. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, he's talking about Jesus Christ, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testified. You see that? The life was manifested. That implies that it preexisted. The life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Do you see how absolute John writes? It's beautiful. He's just saying this is what it's like to be in fellowship with God. And if this isn't a reality, then the word is not in you. You see how simple it is? Ta-da! Nice and simple. It's mind-blowing. You spend, I mean, I've been on that, I've been on that chapter in the next part of the next one for oh, well over a month now in my own personal studies. And I, I just sit there and just am amazed by it. I can only sip it. Read like one or two verses at a time. Can you imagine that? And I sit there in my recliner and I look out the window and I ponder it. And my mind is blown. Some of you are like what? You read one verse and sit there for an hour. Yep. Imitate my faith. That's what the Bible says. If I can do it, you can do it, right? If the man standing before you can do that thing, you know what? You can do it. Matter of fact, the Bible says, imitate that man's faith. If he has faith that he can sit in a recliner for an hour and ponder one or two verses and in fellowship with God, in the presence of God, be blown away. And there's other Holy Scripture that says that a student's not greater than the teacher. Then you know what? Guess what? You should be able to do that. And at some point, for some of you, if you're not there already, you will want to. Because some of you are like that old thing I was mentioning before. Uh, I guess I'm just not there yet. All right, cool. At least you're humble enough to admit it. I don't really want to. I'd rather be uh, on, you know, on my phone texting with uh, eyelashes or buffalo or whatever you people do. I'd rather be doing that. Well, that's between you and the Lord. I I certainly can't um, wrestle you into that position. I can't do that. That's a lesson I learned probably five, six years ago. Tried so hard to, to exhaustion, I just basically gave up. And he said, good. You're not supposed to try to wrestle these people. You're supposed to teach them. The power comes from my spirit. I will change them. John was able to write so plainly because of the confidence he was given by Christ himself about eternal life, and specifically regarding fellowship within the sphere of eternal life, where God's presence may be experienced. He just wrote plainly, and I love it. Now you see why things like love and obedience are intrinsic to a believer's very existence. It's because there is perfection with eternal life. Perfection, perfect harmony, perfect love. It's what you would expect in perfection. Certainly wouldn't expect disobedience with you with perfection. No. God is an undisturbed being, meaning he is immutable. His thoughts aren't ruffled. He's not struggling like some of you are right now, which is a good thing, by the way, because that struggle is meant to sanctify you. It's something you got to go through. But he doesn't have that problem. He's perfect. He's undisturbed. But because of sin, we are not. Therein lies the reason for our confusion, even to this day, at this very moment. We struggle with the idea that love could be so pure that its bonds could never be broken. I mean, some of you draw, unfortunately, on human experiences and having been burned. But we're not supposed to do that. That's, again, sin saying, see, like Jay Giles, love stinks. Nobody? Am I that old? Nobody? That's sin trying to deceive you. Some of you are afraid of love. And with other humans, you probably should be. You should always have a healthy fear when someone says, I love you. Because, let's face it, chances are, given that most people are awfully selfish lovers, they only love you for what you can do for them. Which is why, once you stop doing for them, bye-bye. We struggle with the idea that love could be so pure that its bonds could never be broken. We struggle with the idea that obedience could be so implicit that we never want to disobey the one who loves us. We struggle with the fact that we've been given a divine place of fellowship with the holy God of the universe, the author of all the above. And all of these insecurities, well we can thank sin for them. Because God doesn't have them. God's convinced of your sanctification. You're not. So we can thank sin for all this stuff. To believe anything contrary to Holy Scripture is to fall prey to the deceitfulness of sin. This is the reason for this lengthy series we've been on and this brings us back to where we ended. I think it was on Thursday. Go to Ephesians 5:13. Ephesians 5:13. I'll start wrapping up here in a little bit. Quite a lot to think about. I'm still bitter about my slides, DJ. Ephesians 5:13. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. You have these unbelievable privileges. Some of you, I can see it in your face. You, you, You lit up with what the Spirit gave you this morning, which is awesome. But then it comes to you, making the most of your time. If you have that resounding sort of solidarity, that hope, that love, that thing that's probably still echoing in your soul, cling to it cling to it. Instead of doing that heinous thing that some of you are going to do, that I poked fun at, you walk out that door, you take a right turn, and before you even get to your car, out comes the phone. Let's see. Oh, I'm going to get tethered right back into the sewer pipe. Right back into the sewer pipe. You haven't even made it out of the parking lot yet. That is not making the most of your time. Whatever's on that phone, trust me, I've been around enough. Whatever's on that phone can wait. You might say, oh, you don't understand my work. Oh, yes, I do. I understand work. I had one of those jobs where it was unrelenting. Nothing is more important than this. Nothing. So that's what he means, making the most of your time. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. So this means you have purpose up here on the board. Purpose gives us direction. Given that the Lord has revealed real purpose for us, the point is that we don't misappropriate our lives once saved. It's the craziest thing. He says, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys. I'm going to give you my joy. What else can I give you? I'll give you my peace. He also says that elsewhere, right? So there's those two promises. Who doesn't think about that? Take your life, if you're a little miserable right now, just think of it this way. Take that life and say it's going to be immediately infused with perfect, divine, overwhelming joy and peace. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want those two things alone? Oh, and then by the way, while you're sitting there doing the backstroke in joy and peace, Jesus Christ, His Spirit, the Father upon high says, we love you. It's like looking up, doing this number, and and God's looking down on you saying, I love you. Compare that to your life. You know, the one that you're going to tether to when you get out here right? Sewer pipe, a little taste of hell on earth, death come through an interface. Compare that to what I just described. What I just described is your privilege in Christ Jesus. It, It just, we're so dumb. We're so stubborn. It takes us a lifetime to figure it out. Every day we look back and go, man, I wish I knew that yesterday. I would have been a little happier. That's life. The idea is that you've been given a divine privilege, a purpose. And as soon as you have purpose, you know what your direction is. It's not to work as unto man, like some of you do to please man, to go to work every day. Grind yourself to a nub for a man or a woman. I'm not saying working hard because you know that's been coming from the pulpit too. But not at the sacrifice of this. Matter of fact, if you understand Holy Scripture, you know those two things are co-joined. Conjoined, I think is the better word where now you're working as unto the Lord. And now they're not competing, are they? Now you get to work hard and do the backstroke. That's the perfect harmony, the synchronicity of God. And I'll end with this. This is, I think, where we ended on Thursday, actually. Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. That's the, that's the great encouragement that keeps coming back in our lessons. Serve one another. If you look at yourself and you say, Oh, I love. I love. Who do you love most? And do you love others because of what they can do for you? Are you a selfish lover? Or do you love like Christ? Didn't Christ say, love your enemies? Didn't he? Pray for them. Pray for them. Serve one another. He said... (laughs) Right after he said, I'll give you my joy, he said, do these things. One of them was, serve and love one another. So if you want my joy, if you want to experience the privilege, all the stuff we discussed this morning, if you want to experience that privilege right now, because that's the nature of eternal life, then cast off self-love. and begin living and loving and serving one another. Cuz that's where joy is. That's what Jesus did. Out of heaven, humbled himself to serve. That's the secret. Amen. All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful message that you've ordained for this congregation, Father. As always, it's perfectly timed. We just ask and pray that individuals here that are struggling with any of it, that are tethered to the world in an unholy, unhealthy way, that they continue to listen to the convicting ministry of your Spirit, Father. We pray for their strength, that they're able to resist the devil and his schemes. We ask all of this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.